Welcome to the Our Safe Harbor Church podcast. Here you can listen to our Sunday sermon, Monday morning message, and midweek Bible study. We hope you will consider subscribing, sharing, leaving a review, but please be sure to check out our website at www.OurSafeHarbor.com to learn more about us and find ways to get involved. Our Safe Harbor Church, we are with you wherever you are. Good morning, church. <clears throat> and we do have visitors with us. It's, it's good to have the grants back. Welcome home in every sense of the word. Um, they, are, they are our host, and so it's, it's lovely to have you actually on the premises. Yeah, we know that when you're... Uh, by the way, we had the prototype of the Museum of the Bible in Colorado Springs for quite a while, and that's before they found a permanent place for it. And we have our friends from Colorado here, Jeff and Katie, have come in. Don't know if you're trying to come under, under the wire, but too late to ask now. Um, it, dear friends, wonderful people. And he has a Tennessee connection up in Fort Campbell. And so um, you just uh, get to know them. We have friends from Cookful that are here. We've got Dr. Hunter back with us. I'm looking around. It's getting dark, and I'm looking out and see if I've missed anybody else. You just need to sit closer. That's all I can tell you. Uh, The lights are interesting up here. It is so good to be with you. My allergies will affect the voice even more than usual today, but that's all right. Uh, I'd rather have this for a time than snow. So we will will take this. Our hearts are breaking with those in Mississippi. We have reached out to everybody we know is a member of our safe harbor in Mississippi. All of them say that they are fine. One of our members is actually a Red Cross emergency uh, contact and worker. And he was sent to a couple of these towns, I believe Winona, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. Um, They're working in some of these towns. They were sent to the Rolling Hills, Rolling Flat, I can't remember, what was that? Rolling Fork, one of those. And they couldn't even get in, it's basically gone. So please be praying for them. Our Safe Harbor people are on the scene. Um, They tell us right now nothing. If you want to donate to the Red Cross and designate that for the Mississippi people or for Fayetteville, you can do that. But they say wait a couple of weeks because then the workers leave and the cameras leave and then we know what we really need. And so we promise that we'll be there for them. You know, we're not a rich church by any stretch. We go on a, on a, a shoestring here. But we are a loving church that, that shares as much as we can, as often as we can, wherever we can. So please keep them in your prayers. And thank you for those in Knoxville and um, Chattanooga for coming out to see me this week on the Welcome Home Tour. That was a lot of fun. And you encouraged us greatly. And I, I met a fascinating fellow in Knoxville named Ray Smith, who's... <clears throat> Also here, he lives half the time in in Oak Ridge and half over here. Well, actually, he lives 10% of the time here, 10% in Oak Ridge, and 80% on the drive between the two. But uh, it was so good to have you there. Thank you for popping in. We're coming up on Palm Sunday and Easter. We we need to talk about some things because the sermons usually are the same about this time of year, and the stories are usually about the same, but... We don't need to do it that way. We need to have a better look at what actually happened on the cross. Let's say that Cammie sent me to the grocery store to pick up a few things for her. 
And if you ask me what I did, I might say, oh, I went to pick up some milk. Or I might say I picked up some bananas or bread or paper towels. If you didn't stop me and demanded that I tell you what I really did, I would, I would be confused. If you then went, well, did you go for milk or did you go for bread? Did you go for paper towels or bananas? They're very different things. Which one did you go for, Patrick? I would know that either you were mentally disturbed or you were a police officer trying to get me to confess to a crime because that's the way they will do things uh, and, and just kind of pound at you that way. But the answer is not a singular item. The answer is not a singular item. While I might, may have had a priority in my mind, cookies, she may have had a priority in her mind, food, which I don't get. But the fact is, underline this in your head, more than one thing can be true at the same time. Jesus, what did you do on the cross? And Paul gives an answer, and Jesus gives an answer, and Peter gives an answer, and people are going, well, which is it? More than one thing can be true at a time. I went for milk, but also went for other things. While I was there, I may have had a conversation with a friend I met in an aisle. I might be reporting the conversation, and you're confused. Did you go there for conversation or for milk? Well, I rarely go anywhere for conversation, but it does show up. So, well, early Christians had many views, it might surprise you, when it came to what Jesus did on the cross. And they really got in the weeds trying to define each and every aspect of this. And then when they got one, they would hold to it and ignore most of the others. And I'm not going to try to really open up or in the common parlance unpack these. I'm just going to mention a couple of them. There was the recapitulation theory. Uh, the title needed work. What it meant was that Jesus was the new Adam and how Jesus then undid all the harm that Adam had done, which is a theme, uh, not a major theme, but a pretty good theme in the book of Romans. So I could see how they get that. So Jesus comes to be the man who is also God to undo the harm of the first man. Then there was the ransom theory. A lot of us have heard that, bits and pieces, that Jesus died as a ransom. Now here's what's interesting. In the first few hundred years of the faith, there was a big argument. Was he a ransom to God or a ransom to Satan? Just kind of shows you that they were kind of on both ends of the map. To satisfy a debt on the souls of the human race, which was inherited by what they believed was Adam's original sin. I'll just have to say this very briefly. Original sin is a concept that once sin entered us, we are all born with sin already in us. We are pre-packed with sin, even babies. I do not believe that's taught in scripture at all. I believe it causes a lot of problems. And as much as I love the NIV, and I do, it really upsets me every time that they replace the word flesh or mortal body with sinful nature because they're throwing that original sin back into us. The sermon today is not about original sin. If you have questions about why I reject it, just email me, patrick at rsafeharbor.com. And I do answer most emails, and I answered Al's. And Al, uh, love, I love Al to pieces, and he knows that his personality and mine are very different. And whenever you said that, and he approved what I was going to say this morning, I turned to Cammie and went, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
<clears throat> but, I, but I do approve, Al. It was very, very well done. But I was thinking this could go a lot of directions right now. I might actually be changing the sermon. Uh, but you, you did lovely. Thank you. Then there's the Christus Victor theory, which I must admit, I have a lot of love for. And that is that Jesus on the cross triumphed over the evil powers of this world. He rescued us through his resurrection. And he established a new relationship between God and mankind on the cross and in the empty tomb. That theory, by the way, dominated Christianity for the first thousand years. And it still is the official theory for the Eastern Orthodox churches. There's another one. This ends after a while. Just hang in there. The satisfaction theory says that Jesus' death on the cross satisfies the requirements of the law. They required restitution for the sins. You remember you had sins and sacrifices in the Old Testament. Hebrews deals, deals a lot with that idea of Jesus being an ultimate sacrifice. And so that's the satisfaction theory. Then the moral influence one you may not have heard, but it's really important, that Jesus died to show us the true love of God. Now, how did that work? Because he is born with the announcement, peace on earth, goodwill to men. And he dies with forgiveness on his lips. And he is raised not to conquer with sword and armies of angels, but with love. That's pretty important. And they also say, the cross changes our perception of God from an angry God to a loving one. Now think about how opposite that is for most of us. Because for most of us, we were raised under something called the penal atonement or the substitutionary atonement, which means all of our sins, see if this sounds familiar, all of our sins that anybody ever committed or would ever commit were dumped on Jesus on the cross because the only, we could not pay for our sins, so Jesus, as the song says, paid it all, and all to him we owe. Now that is true, but that became the only thing Jesus did on the cross once a fellow named John Calvin. Remember him last week? If you didn't hear that sermon, please do. We just really need to work on this. He called it the vicarious atonement theory. And I must tell you that if you want to talk to people about Christianity who are not Christian, who know a bit about the faith, but they're not church people, they're going to get hung up as soon as you talk about this. They're going to say something like, so I do bad things and Jesus, God grabs his son who did nothing wrong and punishes him and I'm in the clear and supposed to be happy about that. Once they say that, I go, well, now that you've said it, out of, I hear that. that. That does sound wrong. What would, what would it feel like to you if we said, we caught the guy that murdered your son, but what we're going to do is go over here to Bob who doesn't even know you. We're going to punish him. That'll sort it out. It just seems wrong, doesn't it? Of course, when you have contact with deity, changes the equation, but still. This theory says that God, God sent Jesus to die to satisfy God's wrath 
against mankind. And so his sense of justice had to be justified by the son paying the price for all of our sins. A lot of people don't know that that was really formulated and pushed by Calvin. And it has now become rather standard. What people think that's what he did. While he did that, he didn't just go to the grocery store for bread. There are other true things. By the way, for most Protestants, and I, I dare say most Catholics, the vicarious atonement theory is nothing less than the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. It seems right. It fits a, a great many Bible passages. Notice I did not say that it seems to fit. It does fit a lot of Bible passages. It aligns with quotes such as a, a very memorable quotes like in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Well, that sounds rather cut and dry. Paul even equated this concept with the gospel of Christ. As Sean read to us today, did you, did you notice that or did you go back over our midweek Bible classes when we went through 1 Corinthians? Because I spent quite a lot of time here and you might want to go back and um, spend more time in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 8. He talked about what I received I passed on is most important, and he talks about this is my gospel. This is the gospel that was preached. Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and then he appeared, and then he intercedes. But did you catch something there? Jesus says something about the gospel, and it doesn't really match with everything John, uh, Paul is saying here. Because Paul is not talking about one thing. He's not talking about just the cross. The gospel isn't just the cross. It's the heart of God that led to the cross. The heart of God that was with Christ and raised Christ. It was with the heart of God whenever, whatever Jesus did during that gap between his death and resurrection. The scripture says he's, he preached to the spirits in prison. You know what that means? I don't either, and nobody does. I've heard all the theories that I can hear, and I keep going, maybe. But God leaves a mystery there. All through this, all of this together is the gospel. Well, Jesus, let's, let's just go to Jesus for a little bit. It's usually good, isn't it? Isn't it? I'll just trust Jesus. When, you, when in doubt, trust Jesus. What did Jesus say about the gospel? He, he talked about it. He said, I must preach the gospel of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that's why I was sent in Luke 4. By the way, I know I'm going to throw a lot of scripture at you today, but please remember that Kirsten um, helps us, our creative director, not only make slides pretty and um, a thousand other things, but she also puts my notes in the YouTube box there for the comments. You can go and you can download them. Real quick, just let you know that yet one more man in Louisiana State penitentiary got his clemency papers signed who was also receiving these notes I think that's four or five Tammy could you correct me on that one uh, I think that's four or five now that have um, and our numbers are up into the 30s of men that are studying these notes every week so you can go get these notes everything we do is free everything is copyright free except for the songs we have to buy a copyright for that so if you download them, use them, feel free to do so. If you can support us, yes, lovely. Jesus also said in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the time has come. 
The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. So Jesus preached the gospel. But what was the gospel? We have to look and see what Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus went through all the towns and villages. He traveled. He moved. Now think about this. <clears throat> he didn't build a center and tell people to come to the center and be told how to behave to be a member of the center. He went out. He was in the towns and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. So he's going about doing good, proclaiming the good news. Still don't quite have a definition from Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee. Once again, notice that the good news moves. The good news changes things. Teaching in our synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, sounds about the same. And healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then there's Matthew 24, verse 14. And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. The end will come, by the way, in Matthew 24, is referring to the end of the Jerusalem system of worship. Um, that, that whole thing, that whole edifice that they had built up, that's referred to as the Olivet Discourse, if you want to look that up. It's not about the end of the world, it's about the end of their world and their entire culture, which took place in years on either side of 70 AD. All of these things, he was resurrected, he is in you, verse, uh, again, Matthew. Matthew talks a lot about gospel. Matthew 12, 28, he is upon you. Luke 17, 21, he is in you. And after he was resurrected, there's another gap. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. It's hard for me to read Acts chapter 1, verse 3 without going, because it says he met with his disciples and he talked with them about the kingdom for 40 days. What did he say? <laughs> It's not in there. And I've had many conversations with God about, you know, the beginning of the Chronicles. Got a lot of lists in there. Don't really need them. I would like that. How about the sermon on the walk to Emmaus, where he told them everything the Old Testament had said about him. And we don't even get notes. That would be wonderful. I believe God gave us everything we, we need but he didn't give me everything I wanted. How about you? There are times I would like, to, I mean, I can't, I'll trade you Ezekiel. I really, now Ezekiel's a great book, don't get me wrong. Ezekiel is a, the Picasso of the prophets. And you can look at, at that and see, you know something? The five noses make sense now. Ezekiel has lined it out. But um, I would love to have had these lessons. It, that's the one retreat I would like to attend. As an introvert, Sometimes people invite me to a retreat. Now, a retreat's not a retreat. A retreat is a gathering. It's a lock-in for adults. <laughs> and they'll say, yes, you'll come over here, and, and you'll, you'll have a private room with four other people. And I'm going, I don't think you know what that word means. And then they'll say, and for 48 hours, we'll be eating together and singing together and talking together. And I'm thinking, and still not selling it. You're still not selling this concept to me. Uh, when I retreat, I go quiet. So I'm one... But this is one retreat I'd go to. I'd take notes. I had a teacher once back in school. 
This is back in, in high school, secondary school. But he was so good that you wrote everything. Not because he told you, but because it was good. It was a history course. And even if you hated history, this guy was an amazing teacher. I told people, if you dropped a pencil, you may as well drop the course because you're going to miss so much. That's what I think this 40 days would have been. We're going to talk about in the next two, day, two weeks the effect this 40 days had on people because we can see it. And that might have a lot to do with Easter. You see, the kingdom wasn't a place you go to when you die if you're good. I need to say that again because I was always given the impression that if you made the cut, the kingdom was the church on earth. But all right, fair enough. It's a place you're going when you die. And Jesus, as he said, it's already here. It's walking among you now, taking care of you from village to village. One of the, one of the consistent things when I do this, this welcome home tour is I think we've done seven states now and we're going to have to go back to a lot of those because there's so many places that, that we have members. The meetings are not consistent. They're all very different. Um, but there's one consistency and that is the sharing of pain. People have been hurt by churches. They've been hurt by their faith. They've been hurt from what they, by what they've been told about God. And as I said to one lady uh, in Knoxville, Dear lady, I won't name her because I didn't ask her permission. Should have done. Um, I said, I, I've always said you can build the biggest church in any town by getting the people the church has hurt and gather them together. In a lot of ways, our safe harbor has done that. But also, we've gathered people who wanted to be free from the brick and mortar mentality because now we can go out. Preachers, I know a lot of you listen and you, a lot of you get in touch with me and um, God bless you. I know things are hard. But one of the things that breaks my heart that you brought up is that whenever somebody wants to hire you or wants to critique you, they'll say, when are your office hours? You know something? I've, I've rarely had anybody kick open my door saying, where's Jesus? Or, I hear you got him in here. <laughs> the kingdom of God's on the move. I used to say, by the way, that I've never had that happen. And then in Rochester, Michigan where some of our friends from there are here. It happened. A man came in. He was a I don't know, banker, financial guy, whatever. And he said, I, tell me about this church. So I just started doing the standard elevator pitch. And he was nodding again. And he goes, now, how do you get to be a member? And I looked at him. And I'm not one of these that immediately launches into the, you know, make the sale. I, I looked at him and said, Why? And he said, well, I know. And he named two of our members. And he'd had dealings with them. And he said, I found out. I asked them where they went to church. Both of them came here. And the life they live, whatever they got, I want a piece of that. <laughs> Welcome home. Let's have a little walk by our indoor pond and talk about this. And we, and we did baptize him that day. So I, but that did take away my ability to say it's never happened. It happened once. But you notice he met the kingdom on the road. They were moving. They were doing business. They were taking care of households and the like. We had neighbors in Michigan that made it very plain they weren't really interested in a church. On one side. The other side, 
might be interested in a Bible study, but you're never going to baptize us because we've been baptized three times in different ways by different churches. We, we didn't do anything. We just, Cammy and I just treated each other with love and affection, treated our kids the same way, treated our neighbors that way. Neighbors found a church. We baptized those neighbors. Get it out of the brick and mortar and live it. The kingdom is among you. It's the present, powerful, living in you gift of God, the power of the Holy Spirit of God, and yes, the victory of Christ, which he sealed for us by his death and resurrection. Do not minimize this. Do not try to bring it on down to a simple formula. He did more than one thing. Notice, when Jesus spoke about the good news of the gospel, he never even mentioned the cross and the resurrection. Does that mean that Paul got it wrong? No, it doesn't. More than one thing can be true at a time. And Jesus did more than one thing by his life, his teaching, his death, and his resurrection. And rather than fighting over theological territory, it might be a better idea just to let God define his own terms and tell us what he did. The cross stands empty now. Oh, I've heard people make a big deal of the fact that Catholics still have Christ on their cross and they call it a crucifix. And if there's nobody on the cross, it's called a cross. And the Protestants, you know, they'll, they'll tease them about, well, your Christ is still on the cross. No, they, they use that as a symbol, as a reminder. They know he's resurrected. But even though the cross is empty, it leaves us with some questions. Can I ask you a hard question you've never heard from the pulpit before? <clears throat> if Jesus had to die to pay for our sins, who did he pay? God? That's what most of you are thinking. But if God is love and Jesus is the exact representation of God, the Father, how do we square that with a view of God that is seething and raging and ready to throw us into hell and Jesus jumps in between and takes the blow? Something's out of whack here. We'll end up being like um, the preachers of old and talk about sinners in the hands of an angry God. And the old in America, the old early radio preachers like Billy Sunday, who used a lot of uh, Whitfield's old sermon, talking about that God holds us out over a frying pan of hell like worms in his hands, and he drops us and laughs with glee as we get our punishment. Now, will you all come to church and sing God is love? That's a problem. When we get to heaven, will we see a happy Jesus and a seething father? The vicarious atonement theory says a lot that is good and understandable, but it leaves us with questions that it can't answer because it caused the questions. Remember I said last week that when science finds a solution that causes more problems, it's not a solution, and they have to back up and go out again. By the way, science gets things wrong all the time because that's what it does. It tries stuff. You know, I, how many things did Thomas Edison try before he got the light bulb going? I don't even remember. I don't even know if the number we're told is true. I wonder, would we even have the beverage if the people that made 7-Up stopped at the 6th try? You know, you did, what, what is the, you know, Heinz 57 is just 57 herbs and such. I found out that wasn't trying. 
I would have thought that'd be a horrible study. Why didn't the early church ever talk? None of the early church fathers talked about Jesus having to die because God was furious with man. Does that surprise you? It surprised me. When I went back and read the early church fathers all the way through Augustine and beyond, and I couldn't find it. And I'm going, when, where did it come from? I find it, found it came out of Geneva with Calvin. But there's another issue. By the way, there's enough truth in that to make it work with some scriptures. But there's another issue. If the atonement theory is true and God is primarily a judge that demands justice and is far too righteous to allow sinners in his sight, we've all heard that, and if that means he must pour out his wrath on us, how does that square with the announcement of the angels at Jesus' birth, peace on earth, goodwill toward man? Or how does that square with John 3, 16? I'd like to recommend a series of books <clears throat> And every time I do that, I feel obligated to say, I don't sell books. Um, I have no interest in any company. Um, they have, um, and that, Keith Giles is his name, Giles, G-I-L-E-S. He may not like me, I don't know. Um, I have, don't really care. Um, and I don't know that he agrees with everything we say. But he has a series of books that are short and are well-written. And they're the Jesus Un- UN series, uh, Unbound, Unexpected, you know, so look for those. If you like reading and you don't want to go super deep, but good material, it's a good place to go. He says this, if Calvin had rewritten John 3.16 to mesh with his theology, are you ready? This is hard to hear. It would read like this, quote, for God was so filled with wrath against the world that he sent his only begotten son to suffer the punishment that all deserved. By the way, this is tough to hear, but think about how much this gels with what we've been told. I'll start again. For God was so filled with wrath against the world that he sent his only begotten son to suffer the punishment that all deserved. That if anyone would hope to escape eternal torment in a lake of fire, they would raise their hand and repeat this prayer in their hearts. I don't know where he got that one. For they might escape the justifiable wrath of God against us all. For the Son was not sent into the world to forgive us of our sins, but to suffer the righteous anger of the Father and receive punishment for us so that God can now extend to us his perfect love and forgiveness. End of quote. Does that make anybody else uncomfortable in the room? That makes me super uncomfortable. One, because it sounds really bad. And two, because it fits with a lot of what I was told. And three, because there are some passages that if you grab those and don't look at the others, you grab the milk but not the bananas, you don't get the whole story. It just sounds not right. It is true that the Old Testament, Old Covenant, required the shedding of blood. Hebrews 9.22 nails it. The law was very plain, very insistent when it came to sacrifices. And yet, when we come to the Psalms, or we come to Hosea or many other places, God says, I don't, I don't want sacrifices. I'm tired of them. It's stunning. Jeremiah 7. When I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave this command. Obey me 
and I'll be your God. You'll be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you that it may go well with you. And better known from most of us, Micah 6, 6 through 8. Every time I read that, I shake my head and think, Micah, if you and Moses ever got in the same room, how are you going to handle this? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oils? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? The, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Does that sound familiar? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. One of the things I like best about that last phrase, he puts in the word walk. Because the gospel is something that moves. In fact, do you remember? He gets him out into the wilderness and what does he tell him? You build tents, not houses. You move. You keep moving. How about Isaiah 1? I love Isaiah. Every time you read Isaiah, you think he's critiquing your day's politics. It's just amazing. It's, all, it's never old. But chapter 1, verse 11 and forward, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are those to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fattened animals. And yes, he does repeat that for emphasis there. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feast and your appointed festivals. I hate with all my being. They've become a burden to me and I am weary of bearing them. Wow. That's a Yelp review you don't want your church to get. That's a painful review. Was God just angry at that moment or did he mean what he said? Check out these amazing passages. Psalm 50, 7 through 15. Listen, people. I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am God. You're God. I bring no charges concerning your sacrifices or concerning your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. The insects, insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls? Do I drink the blood of goats? Sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High. Call on me in the day of trouble. I'll deliver you and you will honor me. In other words, I don't need all that stuff. What I need is interact with me. Thank me. Call on me. Be engaged with me. So I often tell people, if you are wrestling with God, thank God for that because you're still in touch with him. It's when you go apathetic that you're in trouble. For the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy. 
You need to be engaged. Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. You do not delight in sacrifice where I'd offer it. I keep hearing people in the room go, what? You know, after all the sacrifices they made, what? What? You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, O God, will not despise. Keep your humility. Keep engaged with God. Keep moving. Keep moving. So did God order the sacrifices of animals in the first place? You know, it would be really great if I could say, no, he didn't, but he did. He did. I think the evidence is extremely clear that he most certainly did. Then why do we see the changes coming already in the Hebrew scriptures where God says, just enough, enough. That's enough. Why? Because the scriptures are already moving the people in the old covenant to obedience and an inner moral character that manifests in being loving and good. And yes, it is just that simple. Perhaps the nearer we came to Jesus, the less we needed the sacrifices. Perhaps. We'll never know for certain until we see God, but it's interesting to see the pattern. More on this next week, but for now. Philippians 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he, there's that word again, humbled himself, and becoming, there's a word again, obedient to death, even death on a cross. Do you see what's happening here? Therefore, God highly exalted him to the highest place. And we love that passage. I like to read that passage, but I want you to think about, did Jesus die that our sins be forgiven? Yes. But did he die for us to be shamed? No. He died to show, not to shame. He died to show what it was like to live out the life of the kingdom. When he as a man loves the people, the stranger, the foreigner, the thrown away, the sex worker, the one no one else would talk to, who eats with the exalted religious leaders to their discomfort and eats with those the exalted leaders would not. And then when it was necessary, he goes to the cross without complaining about his injustice, without a word of anger. Instead, he speaks of love, take care of my mother, and forgiveness. They don't know what's, what's going on here. He died to show us how to live, not to shame us. And he was resurrected to show us that God honors living this way. The cross is not there for us to <clears throat> constantly think about pain, but it's to think about a life of love may lead you there. But that's the kingdom of God, and it's on the move. And if it takes you to a cross, Jesus said, pick up your cross. But he didn't stop there, did he? He said, pick up your cross. Follow me. He showed us the way.
C.S. Lewis had a, <clears throat> I'm going to try to do a song. We don't know if I'm going to make the song through or not. And if I don't, I'm going to bail out. But <clears throat> I want to try it. Uh, C.S. Lewis really hit me hard years ago when I read Mere Christianity. And he said that human beings have this strange concept that they own their time. And that one really hit me between the eyes because I'm one of those that love spontaneity. As long as it's well planned, I understand exactly what's going to happen, the points thereof, when it will end, and if I can drive there in my own car so I can leave. It was a, it was a slap to me, and it still is, but a, a necessary one. So when the call comes in and the texts come in, People, you're so gracious. Every, all these welcome homes. So people say, I can't believe we email you and you email us back. What else would I do? What else would I do? That's, I was shown that by the cross. I was shown that by C.S. Lewis. And I was shown that in Micah and the rest, that I'm not above anybody. It's not like a star's walking into the room. No, 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 no. I have every sin that you've got and probably a few creative ones you hadn't thought of. I'm not proud of it, but it's there. Instead, I come because he showed me. He showed me how to live. And he said, follow me. Pick it up. Follow me.